Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The next reading is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son who I love, with you I'm well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come, come near, repent, and believe the good news. This is the word of Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, as you open the heavens to speak blessing over your son, as your spirit descended, we pray now that you would open our hearts. Uh, to receive your blessing, open our hearts to the stirring of your spirit, open our hearts to hear your word well, and to know you better so that we might make you better known. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, as we've heard, this is the first Sunday of Lent, uh, the 40 days where we prepare as individuals and as a community for the devastation of Good Friday and the the glory and the wonder of Easter Sunday, which which together kind of make up the heart of Christian faith. Uh, And how we go about that preparation, we've also heard, uh, might be different. It, It could be in the form of a fast, of giving something up. Uh, in some small way, identifying with Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. Now, Mark, actually, in his version, which we just heard, doesn't tell us that Jesus fasted in the wilderness, but uh, his colleagues, Matthew and Luke, they kind of fill that detail in. And the simplest way to understand fasting is uh, removing something from our lives in order to make room for attention to God. You know, we might commit to giving up something like social media. You know, instead of scrolling mindlessly, we might use that time for prayer and scripture reading. Or we might fast from food one day a week, uh, which helps us remember our dependence upon God. That that prayer that we pray every week, give us this day our daily bread. 
And it also helps us to identify with the hungry of the world whom we are called to care for. You know, or, or we might not give up anything. Um, you know, as, as Pauline said in her devotional for Ash Wednesday, we, we might take something off, a, a way of picking up our own crosses as Jesus calls us to do. You know, I've known people who come up with generosity practices to help them uh, think more about God's generosity to us. Or perhaps there's a social justice initiative. I saw Aaron's coldest night of the year hat there uh, that we might want to uh, give time and energy or money to, remembering that so much of how Jesus is in the world has to do with reorienting us to the hope and peace and joy and love that God wants for all people. Or, or we might just be more intentional about, intentional about our time in uh, prayer and scripture. You know, we might sit with our Lenten devotionals, for instance, each day letting ourselves be shaped more by God's presence and God's word. However we mark this season, though, it's, it's about refocusing on God, about being shaped in the way of Jesus and attending to what the Spirit is doing in and around us. You know, the point is God and God's work. Now, I saw a Facebook post the other day that said, Lent is not a diet plan. Uh, and and it, <laughs> that couldn't be more true. On the other hand, I listened to this daily devotional podcast called Lectio 365. And at the beginning of each prayer, the person leading the prayer invites us to uh, recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. Recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. And I think that's a great way to think about what we do in this season, which is why I'm glad we're starting with this reading from uh, St. Mark's Gospel. In, in kind of typical Mark's style, there, there's a ton of stuff packed into a very short amount of verses, only seven verses. You know, we hardly get any of the dramatic detail that Matthew and Luke provide, um, but we get everything we need because Mark is kind of relentlessly, unflinchingly focused on Jesus and what God is doing in this world in him and through him. And our reading for today, you might have noticed, is kind of three little vignettes that bring our attention to who and how God is. In Mark's company, we, we, our scattered senses are re-centered on God. And the three parts of the reading show us three different things. One, who God is, two, where God is, and three, what God is doing who God is, where God is, and what God is doing. And so we begin with who God is, which is a good place to begin. Now, I, I think it's good that the, the ending of the first reading from the season of Epiphany, which we just came through, uh, is the beginning of the first reading of Lent. Uh, the, this baptism of Jesus, if you were paying attention, you might have felt like you heard this not that long ago. But the baptism of Jesus is so important that we get it twice in a fairly short stretch of time. And in Epiphany, in the, that season of revealing, the focus is about proclaiming John, or Jesus' arrival. John the Baptist is in the desert uh, trumpeting his arrival, letting us know that God is on the move in Jesus. And, and John's testimony climaxes with Jesus' baptism. When the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends and we hear that Jesus is the divinely loved Son, the pleasure of God in the world. But now in Lent, as we make our way toward the cross and Easter, the, the, the focus is not simply on proclaiming God on the move, but a reminder of who this God is. 
If we're going to be about God's work and go where Jesus goes, we need to, we need to get this straight. We need this reminder. And because I preached on this not that long ago, I, I'm not going to say or spend as much time as, as I certainly could. If you want the sermon from January 10th, you can go to uhill.net and find it there. But for today, I want to pay attention to this glimpse of the Trinity, the, the, the three in oneness of God. And, and Trinity is a very theological, kind of churchy word, right? And, and Mark would not have used it, right? Frankly, it took the, the church another few hundred years to come up with language that accurately describes how we have come to experience God as Father, Son, and Spirit. But, but we see it here, right? We see that whatever divine thing is happening in this world, it's the work of the God who is always and only God in relationship. And this matters for all kinds of reasons, but I want to think about two. First of all, it means that God's work in the world is a work of love, right? The Trinity is a reminder that God is, in essence, love. Whatever God will do will not be a work of raw power or manipulation or imposition, but it'll be a work of love. And it's so important that we understand that, right? Failure to understand that leads to all kinds of sins and mangles any good news that we might have for the world. But the trouble is we are so much more used to and we're so much more tempted towards power, right? Power over is, is much more efficient than love with or love for. And I think in my more honest moments, I, I think I sometimes would prefer a God who would default to power, you know, would flex some divine muscle and make everything the way I think it should be right now. And I have to believe that's within God's capacity, right? We know God is powerful. This is the God who spoke the world into being, created all things with a word, the one who can bring down an empire for the sake of its slaves, the one whose own breath sustains all life. God could have done things another more efficient way. But in Jesus, God has chosen love over any other way. God's pleasure for the world is to so love it. That, that's how all things will be made new. The Trinity means that God's work will be a work of love. And secondly, it means that whatever God is up to in this world, it will be at great personal cost. Now, the baptismal scene reminds us that whatever God is doing, it will not be done from a safe and heavenly distance. But God has chosen to be bound to this world. God is with us and for us. God has chosen to be covered in the same dust from which we are made. God has the dirt of Eden under his fingernails. In this moment where the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends and God's pleasure is spoken, we get the first hint that there really is no length to which God will not go to be with and for this world, to love it into wholeness. God will give everything to be with us and for us. Now, as we enter Lent, as we recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God, let's pay attention to this, that God is first and foremost love, and that's God's default for you and for me and for this world. And that that love will not stay vague and distant, but moves right into the neighborhood, gets breathtakingly close, close enough to be held, close enough to hold us in the person of Jesus and in the presence of the Spirit. So that's the first part. The second part of our reading is the temptation. The temptation tells us something about where God is. 
And I think these first few lines, or the first lines, these two verses are profoundly important for us these days. Now, the first thing that might startle us about it all, though, is that it's the spirit who drives Jesus into the wilderness, right? Satan doesn't drive Jesus into the wilderness. The spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And like so much in this passage, that, that one line is, is worth a, some extended meditation. <laughs> we could spend a long time thinking about what it means that the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. I mean, it means that it's, it's worth considering that some of our own wilderness times are the means by which God is forging us in the way of divine pleasure and love. Now, I will always, always stop short of saying that every challenge in life is God's will. I don't believe that. But this does allow us to consider that those times when we are most deeply, even desperately aware of our dependence upon God may also be times of formation for something new that God is working in us and through us. Now, there's just no doubt that this particular time of testing has something to do with, with shaping Jesus' ministry to come. But, you know, this, this year, it, what it really speaks to me is of this hope and promise that there really is nowhere that God won't go. Right? There really is nowhere that Jesus won't show up. Nowhere where the Spirit will not move. You know, biblically speaking, the wilderness is kind of a mixed bag, right? On the one hand, it's a place where Israel learns to be God's people out of the shadow and seduction of Egypt. It's a place of divine promise and provision. It's Mount Sinai and manna. But it's also this place of danger and uncertainty. It's a place that doesn't have clear paths, where there are no signposts to orient us, which makes it a place where we're easily tempted to grab hold of anything that feels like it might provide a sense of security, any idol that feels kind of trustworthy, anything other than the God whom we can't see. Now, Satan is perfectly capable of tempting people in homes and marketplaces and temples, but the danger is heightened in the wilderness, which I think makes it marvelous to know that God will go there. God will be there. I think the fact that the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness is a reminder of the promise that there is nothing in this world that God will be indifferent about. God will not shy away from anything that would overwhelm us. God will not stay in the safe confines of the church, but chases us down even into the wilderness, sometimes driving us there, but even more often joining us there. And I think it's a wilderness time for us, kind of culturally. You know, for, for some of us, it's a very personal wilderness time. There's so much uncertainty and anxiety. We may well look around and wonder where God could possibly be in all of this. It's a time of deep vulnerability, which makes us especially susceptible to all kinds of temptations. But the good news, I think, is that the time of wilderness and temptation in Jesus' own life is a reminder that he will not abandon us in the face of the dangers, toils, and snares that would overwhelm us. He will not turn back from the deep shadows of life's valleys, but goes ahead of us and leads us through. And this is profoundly good news. You know, God who will only stay in the appropriate and holy places is no good to us. Those, that, those are the gods of power over rather than love for. 
We need a God who will get all mixed up with us, not just at our best, but at our worst, not just in our certainty, but in our doubt and our fear and our worry, not just on the mountaintop, but even in the wilderness. And one last thought about this little vignette. Uh, This time around, I'm, I'm captivated by the fact that Jesus is with the wild beasts and the angels. I love the way that Mark almost casually mingles the danger and the hope as if to say, this is how life is. And I I think the invitation in it is to pay more attention to the angels over the wild beasts, right? It's to give ourselves over, or it's easy rather to give ourselves over to the threat and, and miss the fact that in the midst of it all, heaven is for us. So I want to encourage you this week to to meditate on this image in your own life. What are the wild beasts, right? The temptations and dangers and fears. And can you imagine that in the face of those things, the angels are ready to wait on you? Can you imagine that Jesus has been driven into your wilderness to be with you and to bring you through? Which brings us to the last, uh, the third part of our reading. Mark shows us who God is. God is love. God is God in relationship. He shows us where God is and will be even in the wilderness. And now he gives us a glimpse of what's on the other side of that wilderness, of what God's dream is, of what God is doing. So having been driven into the spirit by the wilderness, Jesus is now spirit launched out of the wilderness and comes proclaiming the good news of God, right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is come near, repent, and believe the good news. And there's a kind of hint at Good Friday and Easter here, right? What happens in the wilderness, facing down Satan? And here Satan is more of a title than a name. It means the accuser, the shame bringer, the the power that's at work in this world and in our lives that is opposed to the hope and the peace and the joy and love that God wants for us. In the wilderness, Jesus faces down Satan, silences the wild beast, and in all that foreshadows what's coming on the cross. Jesus facing down everything that threatens the abundant life that we are made for. Everything that would separate us from God, even if it costs him everything. And then Easter. And now we see all that overcome. The wilderness doesn't get the final word. God's kingdom does. Shame doesn't get the final word. Joy does. Fear doesn't get the final word. Hope does. Isolation does not get the final word. Love does. Division doesn't get the final word. Peace does. God's kingdom is on the move. God's will will be done on earth as in heaven, and there is nothing the accuser or the beasts can do about it. And to think about what that means, I, I want to pay attention to Jesus' call to repent and believe, and particularly the repent part, because I think that's the outworking of belief in the good news of God. I heard someone say recently that repentance is not just about our past. Now, sometimes it is, right? Sometimes it means confessing what we've done or not done, ways in which we've lived contrary to God's will for us and for this world. But The way Jesus uses it here, it's not just about our past. It's not even somewhat about our past. It's primarily about our future. Repent means to rethink, to literally come out of our minds. As St. Paul puts it, to be transformed, uh, not conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can get in on what God is up to. 
Now, repentance here is, is not guilt over our past. It is about receiving the good news that the wilderness will be overcome by the kingdom, that the cross will be overcome by resurrection, that death will be overcome by life, and figuring out what it means to live that with everything that we've got. I like, I like this quotation from Stanley Hauerwas, an American theologian that I read this week. He says, the church is to cultivate a people, or the church's role is to cultivate a people, that's us, uh, who can risk being peaceful in a violent world, risk being kind in a competitive society, uh, risk being faithful in an age of cynicism, risk being gentle among those who admire truth, risk love when it may not be returned, because we have the confidence that in Christ we have been reborn into a new reality. Not because we're especially good people, but because we have the confidence that in Christ we have been reborn into a new reality. And it's the reality where lions may lie down with lambs, where tears are wiped away and hungry bellies filled, where the, the slaughtered lamb sits on the throne of the universe. We have been born into a new reality, and that's the invitation here. Not just a hope that God's good will will be done on earth as in heaven someday, but to trust and to live the fact that in Jesus, God's kingdom has come near. And in Jesus' company, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being readied for it here and now and day by day. Right now, Jesus calls us to turn away from the things, material and spiritual, that oppose and separate us from what God wants for this world. Right now, Jesus calls us to recenter our scattered senses and to trust and to live in the promise that in him and with him and through him and for his good pleasure, nothing in heaven, earth, or hell will ever separate us from the love of God. Because he's making all things new. Because we've been born into a new reality. And so may we know it and may we live it today and always. Amen.